0: Pushing the limits but not breaking the system, I think, is the right way in the specific segment that we are working on.
1: Hi, I'm your host, Jude Pereira, and today we'll be sitting down with Sven Fund and Francis Pinter to discuss open access. As experts on this, they will be giving us great insights from their journeys up to this point, the ever-evolving landscape of research and research access, and share with us some of their insights on where the future of research and publishing industries are headed. Okay, without further ado, let's dive right into our first ever episode. Sven, Francis, welcome to the Research Impact Podcast. To start off, can you tell us a little bit about yourselves and your background? Let's start off with Francis.
2: Well, thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be here. So I've got a very long history of publishing, academic publishing in particular, been around for half a century, and I've seen an awful lot change in those years. Been to 80 countries, and I've walked down mile after mile of aisles of libraries with empty bookshelves. I've seen more than one bombed out library, and that has made me very interested in how we can disseminate knowledge better than we have been in the past.
0: Sven? I came a little bit later to the party, so I'm only around for a quarter of a century, and my career in publishing was primarily around digitization, really. So I was just in time In the early 2000s to see what was happening first to journal publishing, then to book publishing, and then to all of our processes in publishing. Since then, I've been working in publishing organizations, large and small, for-profit and non-for-profit. And today I'm here and thinking about what's next in academic publishing. I'm sure we'll cover that in this conversation.
1: Yes, certainly. And we're really grateful to have you here as well. So thank you again for joining us. I really want to dive right into the topic now, as I said. So the first question I have is for Francis. So you are one of the first innovators in open access. So what got you interested in free access to content and what was the focus of your work?
2: I suppose I ought to give you a little bit more of my background to answer that question. I had my own publishing company for the first 20 years of my work And then I was headhunted by George Soros to help develop the independent private publishing sectors in all 30 post-communist countries. And that was a very exciting time in the 90s when absolutely everything was possible, or so it seemed. But I saw there firsthand the difficulties of digital distribution. We were just replicating the old models and access to knowledge was severely limited. People just didn't have access to the internet. Well, we've now solved most of the connectivity issues, but we still have the problem of business models keeping content closed to those who can afford it. And so I just thought there has to be a better way. And that's what got me interested in open access.
1: Amazing. So let's head right to the second question. It's a follow-up question from the one before. It's safe to say you've done some really exciting things in your career. My goodness, 80 countries and what you've seen. So from a rather conventional HSS publishing to existing projects in the 1990s, please tell us a bit more about that.
2: Yes. Well, in the 1990s, we were trying to ensure that everyone had access to the internet, to the World Wide Web, which had only just begun. And there was a certain amount of success with this, but we also saw the need for conventional distribution of content as well. And it was a time when in the journals world, everything was changing and going digital but not so much for books. That came much later. As far as exciting projects, oh my goodness, I could spend the whole day telling you about them. But for the moment, the one that is closest to my heart at the moment is not something from the 90s, but something I'm working on today, which is helping Ukrainian publishers and basically working with them to help them survive during the war and be ready for the recovery once the war is over.
1: That is spectacular work. So what do you find most rewarding about that, both professionally and personally?
2: I'm not sure that in this case it's rewarding. It will be rewarding when the war is won. At the moment, I just see a lot of pain. I see people who are smiling all of the time, positive all of the time. The Ukrainians are absolutely amazing people, but the heartache that they must be going through is extraordinary. And the blockages of getting content to where it needs to be for Ukrainian scholars, researchers, academics, teachers, is formidable. So the job isn't complete yet. The rewards will come later.
1: Brilliant. And we're all hopeful for those rewards. Now, going on to our third question, about 10 years ago, you conceptualized Knowledge Unlatched, which to me is very familiar, and I'm sure it is to some people, as a very innovative and collaborative model to fund OA books. So from today's perspective, what do you see as the biggest contributions KU, which is the abbreviation for Knowledge Unlatched, just for reference, has made to scholarly publishing?
2: Although it only started 10 years ago, and it's hard to remember that before that, there weren't quite so many collaborative models that were employed to fund content. Yes, we had library consortia, but the idea of a collaborative model that could open up access to content was quite new, and applying effectively a crowdfunding model, a Kickstarter model to open access was new. Now, upon that, many variations on the theme have been constructed, and it's been really good to see that there's more than one model that can get us to open access. And it also showed us that there were ways in which these revolutionary potentials could be done that wasn't all that threatening to the familiar ways of buying books that librarians had become very used to. So what we tried to do was to mirror the familiar methods of purchasing as much as possible. And that's something that KU still does.
0: I completely agree, Francis. I think what you have founded and what we tried to carry on and really has, I think, become part of the genetic code of Knowledge Unlatched is this idea of what we call today co-creation. So not being out there alone, not having heroes sitting in a room coming up with great business models, but through constant exchange with publishers and with librarians, really understand where their pain points are and then respond to that. At the same time, obviously, there is a certain degree of competition basically in that field. So publishers have developed their own channels, but One of our first meetings, I remember that whenever you are alone and there is no competitor, you should rethink your idea, whether it's really a great one. And I think we are closely watching that really, because it is indeed true. We have made some mistakes, obviously, on our way. And those mistakes usually have been picked up by competitors not following us. In other cases, we could see after a year or two, they would take certain ideas, develop them further, or copy them, which is also fine, I guess. So in that respect, I think that's important. Another element which I found really important in this rather conservative field that we are in between publishers and librarians, and I think for some good reasons, it's a pretty conservative field, because after all, academic publishing works To quite a degree, right? We found it important to not be disruptive, which was really fashionable five or seven years ago. So first of all, break the system and then build something new and better. We have never done that. So we were always really happy. And you know all the team, Francis, and you do as well, Jude. So we're also ideas to be a little bit more aggressive in the market approach, we haven't done that. And I think that has been very good advice so far. And yeah, pushing the limits, but not breaking the system, I think is the right way in the specific segment that we are working in.
1: Brilliant. A bit of a segue here. So you both have known each other for quite some time. And part of that was when you both were working on KU. So can you give us a little bit of insight on how you met and where and when? Because personally, I'd like to know a bit more. So
0: I remember. An email first, and then a call with Frances almost exactly 11 years ago, when she started to put together a list of interested publishers for the first, what we call pledging round, so funding round for Knowledge Unlatched. And at that point, I was CEO at a publisher here in Berlin. And Frances said, so could you imagine giving us three to five books participating in this package? And my colleagues in editorial were a little bit upset and said, you know, this is all unclear. And does it really bring funding or is it just a big risk? And how do we look as a publisher if we support something that doesn't work? All these reasons to not innovate in a rather conservative industry. At that point, I had one colleague who had just joined from another publisher a few months earlier, and she said, let's just try it and let's look at our list of titles. Not all of them are doing great. So what can we lose? And isn't there a great opportunity, a great upside in joining this? And can't we reposition towards academics our whole appearance as a company, our whole list in a positive way? So we tried it and our, I think, three titles made it at that point in time. And since then, the publisher is more or less continuously on board. So that's how we met. And then we met at a conference in Berlin and one thing happened after the other.
2: But I'd like to tell a little story of the early days of knowledge unlatched. So I started talking about the concept in 2010. I went to a tools of change conference in New York. There were a thousand people there. I was speaking over the web for the first time ever. The worst of it all was that my husband was able to watch me at home and I was following Adriana Huffington as a speaker. I mean, it could not get worse, which is <laughs> what a baptism of fire. But anyway, I didn't have a name for knowledge unlatched. And I spent two years going around conferences, telling people about the concept. They would kind of get it sometimes, sometimes not. And I would say, I don't have a name. So if anybody has a good name, I'm offering a bottle of champagne if I adopt the name. Well, after two years, my husband got very tired of this and he came up with the name Knowledge Unlatched. And so I bought him a bottle of champagne and I drank half of it. It's a story that I use to illustrate how hard it is in the early days of doing something new when something seems so obvious 12, 13 years later.
1: Wow. That really does sound like a win-win situation at the end. Nobody will turn down champagne. So we'll jump right back into the next topic, going back into OA as a focus. So I'll start off with Sven because I know I want him to start off. And of course, Francis, I want you to also answer this as well. So smaller publishers have played a very important role in innovating publishing when it comes to OA. And at the same time, we see small UPs suffer a lot financially alongside their institutions in the present financial environment. So how do you exactly see this pan out?
0: Yeah, it's true. So I would say that Open Access for Books, mind you, has been really pushed by smaller publishers, by smaller presses. You probably know that many of continental Europe, we don't have a... Structure of university presses as we have in the US or in the UK. So it was a little bit different according to territories. So it could also be in Germany's case, for example, commercial publishers. But it's absolutely true that these small publishers have carried the burden of innovation, which is, I would say, not normal and which has not happened in innovations around open access journals. Obviously, they have very different programs, very different lists. But I think this mission driven character of book publishers of university presses, also of commercial presses, by the way, have made them think early on when Francis or later I came around the corner, this is probably not a bad idea. This increases distribution of content and knowledge, basically. And at the same time, if there's a financial model behind that, that allows us to further grow our lists and develop our programs, that's a great thing. So In that respect, they have been really important. I would say that the pandemic and other developments have been an additional burden on institutions, academic institutions in North America, in the UK, not so much in the state-funded systems, I would say, as in continental Europe. Yeah, but it's getting more and more difficult. And I think that's why there's also a need to really innovate and not just this curiosity. So innovation is never only in that respect, a positive thing where you sit down on a Friday afternoon and take your Wiley Focus Friday and think about something great. That's one thing. The other element is also, let's think about how we can keep the business that we have and basically rebuild it into the future. And I think that's what has happened here.
2: Well, I'd like to comment on that too and take a slightly different take simply because I'm looking at it from a much longer time span. Small scholarly presses, well, whether university presses or mission-driven presses, they've always suffered financially, and they've always been a great source of innovative content. And ever since I've been in publishing, everyone has always been complaining that it's a bad time to enter into publishing. However, at the same time, small presses have regularly been bought by the larger presses. And then that leaves space for new entrants from the next generation of usually young, mission-driven presses and doing wonderful things. And at the same time now, we've got much lower barriers to entry for small presses. When you're talking about book publishing, you don't have to hold lots of stock, all sorts of costs that just fall away. So, more people are likely to throw their hats into this rink, I believe. And we now have the small library-based publishing operations emerging too. And I suspect that this will actually continue to grow and add some kind of dynamism that we can't really anticipate just yet, particularly with some of the developments around AI, where the smaller presses will become more dependent on what the larger commercial companies do and where they might forge liaisons of one kind or another.
0: And I think really that is the interesting element that we have this innovation coming from one part of the spectrum, particularly because for whatever reason, smaller publishers were driving in the driver's seat here. And yet at the same time, we have also seen that within Knowledge Unlatched, there's also a certain elements where you need the ability to scale, to basically lower cost per item, per book, per article, or whatever, which is, I think, a big topic in open access and journal-based open access right now. Everybody's talking about the cost per unit, per article, with good reasons. If we get it right, then we have a more attractive offer towards libraries, towards our customers. Yet at the same time, it challenges us as organizations to basically reduce cost without lowering the quality of what we do.
1: Brilliant. And I'm just going to do a bit of a plug-in here because Francis just bought in the topic of AI. That is another big topic when it comes to this. We will also have an episode dedicated to AI in the future as well. Plugging is finished. So I'll move on to the next topic. So where do you see OA developing? So how will the most important formats, which are OA books and journals, develop going forward?
0: Just spoke to a common friend of Francis and myself, David Warlock, lately, and he said that probably we have been talking about open access now for 20 years in one shape or form or the other, and it has become a reality that's here to stay. Obviously, there is a lot of conversations right now where OA is linked to another topic, especially when it comes to journal publishing, which is research integrity and the question also linked to AI and research integrity. So the question, how can we as publishers safeguard this process of publishing meaningful science and still knowing who the intellectual originator of that science is? And I guess that will be an important element for us going forward, not just for OA, but also for the remaining paywalled content. In my view, there will never be a world where paywalled content completely is being eliminated from the market, from the face of the earth. And I think that makes sense, both from an economic, but also from an intellectual perspective. There's always enough room for different business models. And it's the job of librarians and publishers to really manage that in a sensible way. That's something that we are doing with the latest offspring in Knowledge Unlatched with OABL, where we are trying to help libraries really Understand all of these very small, granular transactions on an article level and keep the overview that they need to manage their funds. But I think then there's another element, and I'm curious to hear what you think, Francis. There's another element which is about service. I think open access has shown us that publishing is not just about brands, with all due respect. It's not just the great lighthouse brands that everybody knows when they think about science or humanities or whatever. It is also about convenience. These factors we need to take much more serious in the future and really pay more attention to them. How can we make sure that publication is fast, is easy, that the systems we are using towards researchers are not clunky from the 1990s systems, but something that everybody who is growing up now as a generation TikTok into science can deal with. And you don't need an extra Driver's license basically to run these systems on your computer.
2: This episode is brought to you by Wiley Partner Solutions. As the landscape of access continues to change throughout the research and publishing ecosystem, we seek to help our partners and customers explore and adapt to these changes in ways that deliver sustainable growth and a better research experience throughout the researcher journey. Find out more at www.wiley.com forward slash partner solutions. Sven, you've touched on a point that I think is really interesting, which is that authors' preferences are really important to take into account as well, not just their skills. And you can see it when you compare HSS and STEM subjects and the knowledge ecosystem in which Those scholars work. I'm not going to comment about journals because my background is mainly in books, but I see this all the time that authors select publishers on a basis of seriously competing criteria. Some will select for purposes of prestige of a large press. Others like the coziness of the very personal relationship with an editor of a small press. They want to find people that are like them, with whom they can build a relationship. And that's kind of nice. That means we have lots of what is called bibliodiversity and lots of presses doing their own thing and accommodating the needs of authors. What I think is going to become increasingly important is the role of metrics and how they will become more and more important to authors and their institutions. And here, open access books do have an advantage over comparable closed titles. This will put positive pressure on making the new open access models work, because we have to. There isn't a choice anymore.
1: With that, we will go on to the last topic that we currently have. So the question is, How do you see the business models, APCs and BPCs, transformative agreements, and subscribe to open, develop?
0: Well, that's a big one, right? (laughs) So I would say both publishers and particularly also librarians are at a very interesting point right now. So what's the answer to the question, how does a library look like without a collection to be developed? without physical product, which is the reality more and more already for librarians today. And I know that some large libraries and consortia are starting to discuss that right now. And that obviously will mean a lot of changing skill sets that are required from librarians. There are great library supporting companies like Skilltype, for example, supporting that where you within one generation have now the second major switch as an employee, as a librarian that you need to make. And I think the same in publishing. I think there's a constant pressure on that innovation. In my view, the transformative agreements that have helped a lot to make open access for journals a very broad phenomenon where the majority of content now is open access will not be the last word. I think that's also true for the book funding. So first of all, I'm really waiting for the first consortium on the library side to say, let's include books into transformative agreements or book chapters, depending on what it is. And I hope that the UKI policy in the UK, starting next year with open access books to be mandatory, more or less, for a larger group of institutions, for funded institutions, will kickstart that, as many developments have been kickstarted by Government action basically in the UK and in other markets. But also, I think, as Francis said earlier, we will see more and more a shift towards probably not just open access, not just publication of the artifact, which should be open, but also the services that it needs to get there. And I think that researchers should be involved in those choices that need to be made. Yet at the same time, it doesn't automatically mean that they have to understand each and every technical detail behind steps. So one example, I'm a non-native speaker, obviously. So language editing is a great idea. If I write an article, Francis wouldn't need that. So why have a one-size-fits-all approach in cost estimations in APCs or in PAR fees, while Francis creates less cost, Francis' article, and my, in this one dimension, creates more cost. So I guess Publishers and libraries will be challenged to find more agile ways and workflows to work together and really address that choice. And that will mean a lot of replumbing, I think. The systems that we work with right now are early digitization artifacts. Francis also mentioned that somebody who has started as a researcher 20 years ago working with their publisher is not so likely to change the attitudes and the ways they work every five years as publishing systems require that. So we need a lot of sensitivity also, and in that respect, again, co-creation to really understand how far we can push it and how we make sure that we bring in innovation and at the same time don't have people dropping off at the height of their academic careers now because they're in their 50s, 60s, wherever.
2: I agree with Sven on just about everything he said about this. And I would just like to add to the question, what's going to happen to BPCs? And I think in that area, there's been quite a healthy backlash against funding only through BPCs, because this does limit publishing OA to those authors that can find these author-facing charges. And that actually is just a small minority of all the authors that are conducting excellent research and writing books and wanting to get published and should be published. But personally, the area that I'd like to see more experimentation with is the adaptation of the S2O model for books. This was originally designed for journals. There's an S2O community online, and now it's just begun to be adapted and adopted for books. And it builds on the idea of collective purchasing by libraries. So if all the respected brands were to adopt S2O models for either all or parts of their academic list, we would see funds being used much more efficiently and competitively at the same time. This would ultimately drive down costs and benefit everyone. But meanwhile, we have a lot to do in the area of infrastructure because the back office work that needs to be done for OA, as Sven has said so eloquently, is still work in progress.
0: And Francis, I want to pick up on your idea of cost control, right? So the broader adoption, bringing a better cost-benefit ratio for customers. We have actually seen that in Knowledge Unleashed as well. So in the first rounds, you needed to make sure that publishers would participate and let them set their charges per title relatively freely. And we had a very broad. Spread there. Over the pledging rounds, the funding rounds, we have more and more standardized that. And those publishers that had a very high title fee in the beginning, for example, didn't necessarily drop, but they understood that this is a market segment in the making, more or less, and that they need to adjust and can't just say, oh, in the old print ebook world, we made this revenue per title and we need to make that in a new model as well. No, you need to adjust to customer demand to developments on the cost side as well. And I think that has worked well in that respect. And I would agree it will also be a trend over the next years. We need to be cost conscious in academic publishing. And I think that's a big challenge still to really break it down to what it is there in terms of cost.
2: Another area that still needs a lot of work on is how all of this is accounted for because the P&Ls that we did in the old world of print and even the closed world of digital just isn't working. When you ask an editor to say, well, where's the income going to come from? Well, how are we going to apply it? And how much of this is going to what? Still work
1: in progress. So can you tell us a little bit about Oable and its impact? I know you have been working quite a while with Oable as well. So would you be able to give us a little bit of perspective on that?
0: Yeah, happy to do that. So Knowledge Unlatched was always, as Francis said, a business model, a workflow, basically. But also there was technological support for this to exactly keep down cost and help publishers and librarians to better assess the impact of what they did. We had a system which we gave very early on the nice British name Margaret. And Margaret was our back office system, really helping us to compile open access ebook packages, make sure that we could compile usage in open access. Think about it usage in different platforms that you need to consolidate with different metrics. So you need to come up with analytics, and there's great work being done by former colleagues from Knowledge Unlatched, Lucy, for example, and others who were engaged very early on. I think we are only getting to a point now where we can say we have pretty solid analytics on how open access works for books and to really measure the impact. OABL was the next idea where we wanted to professionalize how we worked with journals. We had tried different approaches Some of them work better, like subscribe to open, which Francis mentioned, where we did funding rounds. Others didn't really work so well. And the problem was always that we couldn't even demonstrate a library how much they were involved with the journal in a 360 degrees approach, basically. So if you just tell the library, this is what you have spent for a subscription in the last year, that's one thing. But now you have to say, this faculty member is the editor-in-chief of the journal. Five people have done peer reviews, and two people have submitted papers to this that got accepted and published. So obviously, you need a much better understanding. And that's when we started OABL a few years ago as a management tool for libraries, not for publishers. Usually, KU is trying to find this middle ground between publishers and libraries. In this case, we said, Let's make sure that the library is the customer. The library gets the analytics they need as the driver of open access when it comes to funding and let the publisher just be a very important supplier of data. So that's what we are doing with OAPL. So university now has basically a dashboard helping them to understand where do they spend money, where did they reject articles, who is eligible to certain decisions and basically process that whole workflow from incoming metadata through decision making, analytics, and then payment. That's the idea. It's a pretty tall order as a project. You can imagine that every institution, like every publisher, have their own workflow systems, setups, and so on. And then you're not talking to the library, but also to the finance department and to the legal department for compliance reasons think of OSTP in the US, for example, suddenly compliance is becoming a library topic. And all of that together is the problem that Oable tries to solve. Not looking at subscription or paywall businesses. there are other great tools for that but we try to build bridges and make sure that we exchange data, but just focusing on open access.
1: Yes, and I believe Oable has already had a good substantial impact as well, right?
0: That's what I hope. I mean, you always wish for more as an entrepreneur, right? But OABL is being used now by more than a thousand institutions worldwide. So it has really a big audience there. And we just came to an agreement with the Copyright Clearance Center so that we can plug in the publishers working with CCC. So, yeah, we are moving forward. And I'm surprised how much of a collaboration there is in open access still even though it has become like the the middle-of-the-road business for academic publishers, how much we are still willing and able to collaborate and see the greater good for the library as a customer group and not so much the egoistic company decisions that some made in the past.
1: Thank you so much. So unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. I want to extend my personal thanks to Sven and Francis for joining our premiere opening episode and, of course, sharing your amazing insights with us. I personally am really, really happy that you were able to join us and give us all this amazing insight. So as we draw to a close, I just wanted to tell all of our listeners that if you have any questions for Francis or Sven, please do send it across to us by going to the Partner Solutions website and I will ask them as well Where would be the best place for them to connect with you online if they would like to?
2: LinkedIn is fine with me.
1: Same here. Brilliant. The age of LinkedIn. Finally, for our listeners, please feel free to share any suggestions for topics and guests via the podcast page on our Wiley Partner Solutions website. Thank you very much for joining us for our first ever episode. To close off, thank you so much for listening and keep an eye out for the next episode. Till next time. Thanks for tuning in to the Research Impact Podcast, conversations with publishing leaders on trends and solutions for open research. You'll find links in the show notes to any resources mentioned on the show. If you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe so you'll never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review.